This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? In today's episode, we will conclude the first creation account and discuss the way that the original hearers of this total text would understand the character of God as he is introduced within the context of the story in their culture. But first, I would like to say a couple of things to clarify our methods and passion. We do truly desire to not venture outside the text itself to develop our understanding of the story, as we believe the scripture is to be self-sufficient. However, we do think some things are so far removed from our culture that we have to take these asides to see what the story would have been originally. I might even go so far as to say that the text we are reading is not scripture itself because of how far removed our translation is from the original language and culture of the authors and original hearers. However, that is not to say that the knowledge and fear of God is only for those who follow the scholarly passions of linguistics and historiography. That would be elitist, simply put. Most people will never in their lives have the accessibility to learn the original languages nor every nuance of scriptural storytelling, but that says nothing in regard to their righteousness. God is merciful, and it is upon us and you listeners to whom he has granted the interest and the means to do so, so it is we who will be held to account in this regard. Therefore, we must not become puffed up and excited because of the things we find in scripture, that are new to us and tantalizing. We have not found the skeleton key. We cannot go out and annoy everyone, telling them they had it wrong all along and that we've unlocked the true meaning of Scripture. If this is what we do, we are not hearing Scripture. If we were, we would be vexed by every new message illuminated to us through our studies. It would turn sour in our stomach. If we heard Scripture, we'd be quiet, and focus much more on our own righteousness instead of what everyone else is doing and thinking. Translations are like commentaries, made by someone or some people long after the original composition, interpreting the text and trying their best to explain it to new people, those who are also removed, often more so, from the original. And on this podcast, our main text that we are dealing with is itself a translation. So we aren't hearing scripture on its own terms. We are hearing a committee of translators' best swing. Sometimes they do quite well, but other times they miss by a long shot. 
Therefore, in analyzing all of the evidence, we use our knowledge of Hebrew and Semitic culture as an intermediary of sorts to guide our own hearing, and hopefully the hearing of you listeners, in order to nourish a genuine understanding of the text. So we will begin our read today, starting off in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I think it is fair to say that most people understand the biblical symbolism of the number seven as completion. We understand this because most of us who have grown up in a Western setting have generally considered the seventh day of the week, which is either Saturday or Sunday, depending on the tradition, as a day of rest. This is the day that we were out of school and most of our parents were off of work, so it was a day that consisted of relaxation, rejuvenation, and religious activities. This is the time when many of us would go to church and hear the message of Scripture every week, And then Monday would fall, and by the time Sunday would arrive again, we were back in church to hear the scriptures again. It's a repetition, a cycle. We already hinted at the cyclical nature of the scriptural message in our third episode, but it bears repeating as the scriptures themselves repeat the importance of this cycle. So when God rests on the seventh day, he is not resting as in taking a breather, as if chapter 1 was exhausting. He is simply finishing the work he was doing and stops all exertion. And when God stops, the story stops. The first telling of the story is over. And this idea of stopping the story is embedded in the word Shabbat. We, of course, understand this as referring to the Sabbath day, And it's important that we understand the scriptural Sabbath as it is taught in scripture and not how many traditions throughout history have incorrectly practiced it. First of all, this does not have the connotation of rest as in recreation or renewal. There's another Hebrew word for that type of rest, and it is nuach, which you probably recognize as the word from which Noah receives his name. So Shabbat is much better translated as stop rather than rest, just due to the nuances of our English language. So what is being stopped here exactly, and why is the stoppage a weekly occurrence? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to be reminded that there are several Sabbaths in the Bible, all in increments of seven. It is also worth mentioning that the word for seven in Hebrew is Shebi'i, an obvious cognate of Shabbat. But the first Sabbath we hear about is the Sabbath that occurs every seven days. But there's also another Sabbath that occurs every seven years, and that's the sabbatical year described in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11. Here the Israelites are commanded to forgive each other their debts and to give richly to the poor. And then there is yet again another Sabbath after seven cycles of seven years, adding up to 50 years in total, 
and this is the year of Jubilee. This Sabbath is a complete reset of society where all of the debts are forgiven, all of the slaves are freed, and all of the land is returned to its original owners. So the interesting thing is, once we investigate the exposition of the Sabbath and the rest of Scripture, it becomes abundantly clear that the Sabbath is not a rest, but a stoppage, a reset. This is the Sabbath that God blesses and sanctifies. It is not a total cease of all work, just the work that satisfies us and our ego. Whenever we are reminded of the gospel message, we must stop whatever vain thing that is taking up our precious time and work for the needy neighbor and the outcast. It is an invitation to hear the scripture and then to do what it says every week when we go to church, every seven years, every 50 years, and so on. But the differences in time increments doesn't really matter. You could just as well say that in every seven seconds there's a sabbatical second. The Sabbath is made for man in order for us to always be reminded of the biblical message. So the function of the Sabbath in this first instance is the first call to action in the scriptures. We have just been given the first taste of mashal, and now we're being prepared to have our second taste. I'd like to take a closer look at verse 1 of this chapter before we continue. So I'll read it in Hebrew. Vaychulu hashamayim vehaaretz vechol tzavaam. That last word, tzavaam, is key here in this conclusion of what we call the first creation account. God has created the heavens and the earth and all their hosts, which is that word tzavaam. This word comes from the root tzava, which means army or war. The rendering of host here in our translation is a King James-ism. Remember in our last episode, we discussed how almost all of our English translations are revisions of a past English version, and they're kind of building off the work of previous translators. So this is one of those words from the King James version that we haven't quite lost yet. Um, So the meaning that was originally intended by the King James translators uh, is not exactly the meaning that the word carries in our modern English. So for a lot of people, when they hear it in uh, the ESV or ASV or another translation that uses this rendering, uh, it might confuse them or they just gloss over it. I know originally when I would hear this, I'd think, well, what are the hosts of heaven? That doesn't really make sense. That's like a very sort of uh, Christianese sort of phrase that we hear a lot, but like, what does it actually mean? Some renderings in English attempt to fix this issue of confusion by rendering it as inhabitants, or it says those who live in the heavens and the earth instead of the hosts. Uh, But I'd say that these are missing the point. So let's look at the English word host and where it comes from and what the King James translators might have been getting at. So the word host comes from the Latin hospice or hospit, which is where we get the term hospital. At a hospital, the hosts or the doctors take care of you. So the translators of the KJV weren't off the mark, but we kind of lost their original intent with this English word through the natural progression of our language. So that's the English. Now let's look at the Hebrew. 
the Hebrew word tzavah frequently refers to an army. So the original hearers, while understanding in this context tzavah as an assembly of living things that belong to, in this context, the heavens and earth, they would also understand that God has created the heavens and the earth as well as a tzavah, an army, to carry out his will. That is, all the living things that make up this army. And I don't mean an army in the sense of a regime who goes out and conquers and brings wealth to a nation. Of course, that is the immediate understanding that you would have if this was translated as army instead of host. So you can see the trouble that the translators are running into here. What I refer to when I talk about an army is an assembly of beings who have various job descriptions and ranks, working together in perfect order, obedient to the king, carrying out his will. And we'll see this uh, as it continues to be developed. There are two other words in the Hebrew that describe God's completion. The first word is kala, which simply means to finish. It is used here because it's an obvious wordplay with another important Hebrew word, kol, which means all or everything. So there's an important finality here. But it's also a reminder of what we've just heard. That is the first creation account. It's this all-encompassing setting of the stage. So there's a finality, but there's also an all-inclusiveness in that word kala. Everything that is discussed in the scriptural message, everything that is taught and commanded has its roots in this first creation account. The biblical corpus indeed has a head, and it is Genesis chapter 1. The Bible's like math. You must understand arithmetic before you tackle algebra. And this is how the Bible is teaching us, so we need to pay attention. The other word I want to touch on before we move on is melakto, which is translated to the work that is being ended here. So I'm piggybacking a little bit on what Rowdy was talking about with the image of God as king with the hosts. Uh, pay attention to the etymology. Melakto is directly from the word for king, which is melek. So literally, it's like the king's work. This is similar to another famous word, malak, which gets translated to messenger, but we also translate it to angel from the Greek angelos of the same meaning. But in Hebrew, it specifically has the connotation of being a messenger of the king. So what's the deal here? Well, this usage of the word melakto for the work of making kol ha'aretz, that is, all the earth, functional, is once again reinforcing God's complete ownership of everything. And in turn, it is solidifying God's ownership of his story, this story. Let me say again that this kingly meaning embedded in melakto is completely lost on us in the English. Our word work is extremely benign. Let us be continually aware of this. And I know a lot of this might sort of go in one ear and out the other um, for a lot of people because these are just, they're sort of like poetic devices or literary devices that the authors are employing here in the scriptural Hebrew. And it's kind of hard to come up with uh, a comparison that you might have in English. Um, but you can see when you study Hebrew that words are all interconnected. So like Blaise was saying, uh, the idea of kingliness or kingship being connected to God 
has been developed and is being concluded here in this verse in Melakto. The word for king is embedded in that, and it's also embedded in the word for messenger, because the messenger is often the messenger of the king. It's carrying the king's message, and that message is also connected to the king's work. So all these words are interconnected. Um, so like if I were to give an example in English, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, is the word green. I don't know why, but if I were to tell you that um, in the greenhouse, the green greenery is done by the garden keeper or something like that, you can hear how the alliteration um, and the, the repetition of the word green and all the inner workings of those words are interconnected and it's, it's painting in your English mind a very, very specific uh, image. You're probably seeing literally a greenhouse. You're seeing a greenhouse with green plants in it. You're seeing a gardener. The word gardener starts with uh, the letter G, just like the word green does. So I can very specifically and intentionally craft a sentence to put a very specific image in your head, and it's effective because you speak the language and you've heard enough stories in that language or a related language to get the picture that I'm trying to communicate. Hebrew is no different, except we're just not familiar with it. So that's what we're trying to get across. So back to uh, the emphasis on God being a king. Let's remember uh, the total story that we've been hearing over the last several episodes. So God is king. He speaks things into being the same way a king speaks a decree or a command, and it is so. If any of you have seen the glorious Ten Commandments movie, uh, so it is written, so it will be. Isn't that what it is? Or something like that. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So that's the idea. God speaks things into being the same way a king speaks a decree. The king speaks, and the thing happens. God kara, he calls or orders things to be the same way a king assigns or calls or orders officials in his royal court. He gives them particular roles and functions, which is a theme that has been very, very explicitly developed in chapter one. Everything God has done in the first chapter has been in the best interest of the total creation. The same way a king takes care of his people, Elsie doesn't have a people to rule over. It's so clear when you take into account everything that's been said and disregard our normal understanding, our normal reading, where we hear all of this as the power and might of God, where he renders a metaphysical reality and shapes it into a physical reality for the lowly animals and the mighty human. He weaves together the dust of the ground using the force and breathes spiritual breath into this empty vessel, animating it. We read this and we picture all these cosmic events where planets and stars are ripped apart and recomposed at the will of God's word like some fantastic Marvel blockbuster. That's our culture, not the ancient Middle Easts. So here we are for the grand finale of the first creation account, and uh, it's quite a doozy. So uh, I'm going to go through it relatively slow. Uh, I'm going to read it in English first, and then I'm going to read it in Hebrew and uh, break it down a little bit. 
So in the English, it is, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So in Hebrew, Ele toledot hashamaim vehaaretz behaburam beyom eshot Yahweh Elohim eretz veshamaim. So there are a few things to point out. For one, this is the first appearance of the divine name, Yahweh Elohim. Focusing on the word Elohim first, we have here the plural form of Eloah, which is the elongated form of the Semitic El, and is often used as a generic name for God or a God. You can see the word El not just in Elohim, but also in theophoric names such as Israel, Gabriel, Samuel, etc. All the names that end in El are ultimately from the same root. The word Elohim could also be based off of the Aramaic extension of the Canaanite god El, which is Elaha. This is, of course, also related to the Arabic form of El, which is Ilah, and with the article we have Al-Ilah, or Allah, when spoken aloud. This means the God in Arabic. So we can see how all of these Semitic languages are all related with the god El. The word Elohim is not just applied to God, it's also applied to the gods in some places, like Psalm 82. This is probably the best example because we can see Elohim refer to both the god of scripture and the gods that he's addressing. You can see it both within the same sentence. And so this brings up an interesting point. Why is this plural? Well, at the end of the day, this is simply a feature of Semitic languages. A lot of us Christians have the impulse to instantly suggest that this refers to the Trinity, but I think that approach is a bit lazy and doesn't cause you to investigate the Hebrew further. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just lazy. We've already established that the plural of behemoth, for example, is typically used when referring to an especially mighty animal. This is, of course, the word behemoth or behemoth. Elohim is working in a similar way. This is a mighty, all-encompassing God. It's an honorific plural, so to speak. So this isn't just a God, but the God. I think it's also interesting that the Bible makes you wait to hear the divine name Yahweh. Given that this text was written in a world of polytheism, it's almost like a trick that the authors are employing. Like when you begin to hear it, you're expecting something akin to a Near Eastern creation story, but it throws you off little by little. One way is, of course, to take the struggle with the other gods out of the mix. And another way is to reveal that the Elohim is really one functional God. And I think it's a slow burn and something that would give clues along the way, like the fact that Elohim works in unison. If you know your ancient mythologies, the gods never work together for anything. They are always fighting and trying to usurp each other's power. And this finally brings us to Yahweh. 
In Hebrew, this is etymologically related to the word to be, which is haya. We've referenced these a bit in previous podcasts, but Hebrew verbs have various vocalization patterns which nuance the meaning of the verb. In the case of Yahweh, it is in the hifil vocalization of haya, which implies causality. So literally, Yahweh means one who causes things to be. So Yahweh Elohim is literally the God who causes things to be. Causing things to be what, exactly? Say it with me. Functional, right? Hopefully by now, you can see the entirety of what we've discussed so far that has been leading up to this grand reveal of not only God's name, but a solidification of how the God of Scripture will function in all of the stories moving forward. Right, because think about how the Scriptures were originally delivered. They weren't uh, a book uh, that you could flip through at your own will. Um, You didn't go to church and hear three verses of Scripture at a time, like our podcast seems to be where we read three verses and talk a whole lot. Um, Or maybe you go to church and you hear a few verses and a 50-minute sermon on the news or something like that. When people congregated and heard somebody read from the scroll, they were at the will of the reader. So they didn't skip ahead and tell the listeners who this character was. They heard it as the authors intended for them to hear it. So they heard uh, Elohim, and they would understand it to be a singular God, even though it was plural, because the verbs applied to Elohim are are grammatically singular, so you understand that Elohim, while being grammatically plural, is referring to a single entity. They hear that Elohim is doing all these impressive things and these controversial things. Uh, It's setting up a character, and then, like Blaze said, this is where you hear who Elohim is, because Elohim is a generic word, so here is where you hear who he is. And the next important word is toledot. Yeah, so toledot, it gets translated to generations in English, which is of the utmost importance in Scripture. It comes from the word yalad, which means to give birth. So literally, the toledot of the heavens and the earth is the story about their birth and their family tree. In other words, this is all about progeny, the spreading of the seed, if you will. As you recall, that has been a recurring feature of this story so far. Many characters throughout Scripture will have a Toledot, but many have genealogies, but no Toledot. One prime example is Cain, which is an important detail that we'll go over when we get to chapter 4. But the Toledot is important because it is the progeny that ensures the survival of the people and, most importantly, the scriptural message because we will read about it when God blesses Abraham and Sarah with Isaac, who will represent a Toledot of promise. And this Toledot of promise will belittle Abraham's fleshly Toledot through Ishmael, because even though Ishmael is Abraham's firstborn son, he is not the son of promise. Of course, Paul beautifully picks up on this in the fourth chapter of Galatians. And I think that this is an important point, because the fleshly Toledot, the the Toledot that humans care about. We care about our own line. We care about preserving our own species or our own family or 
our own, you know, nation, whatever. Right. A, a considerable percentage of the American population, the the son is named exactly as the father, right? right. You have so many juniors. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, pr- preserving the, the family name, you yeah, know, that too. too. Yeah. Um, but the scripture isn't interested in that. It's using this as, as a model for something that's real world and that we can understand, but the real seed is the message of God's Torah. That's why the New Testament has that introduction with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we realize that that genealogy is not a literal human genealogy because by the end of it, we figure out that Jesus wasn't related to any of those people because at the very end, it's uh, he, he's the son of Mary, not the son of... It's really Joseph's genealogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is this is how the Bible belittles these things that we care so much about, but the the real Toledot that matters, the real family line that matters is the seed of Torah. This is what it's been setting up here. And so one final note on Toledot is a look through the Septuagint. I reference the Septuagint just because it's from a time that's very shortly after, and in some cases maybe even contemporaneous with some of the Hebrews, and it's also the first translation and the version of the Bible that the apostles and the New Testament writers were quite familiar with. So I think that it's always important to look at the Septuagint as well and see what it's doing, as well as the Hebrew. Um, and I I, I, I I, think it's really interesting to see um, how it translates Toledot in this case. So um, let me read this section in Greek. So uh, Genesis 2.4 in the Septuagint is Afti i vivlos geneseos urno, ke gis o te egeneto i imera epoisen o theos ton uronon ke tingin. And so the thing that we need to focus on is vivlos geneseos, right? So that's going to be familiar to a lot of people. Um, it's the word uh, where Bible comes from, vivlos. Um, and so this is what gets translated to Toledot, specifically the geneseos, because geneseos is also where we get the word Genesis from. And so there's a bit of a misconception sometimes, just kind of talking about broadly what we've been discussing this entire podcast about how people are so quick to historicize this text. A lot of people look at the word Genesis and they say, oh, that means beginning or origin. It doesn't. <laughs> um, the, uh, the word Genesis means uh, the birth you know, um, and so it's a direct translation of, of Toledot. Uh, and so, you know, what's being birthed here, right? It's, it's the, the story of the, the Torah, you know, Genesis is, is the story of the introduction of the Torah. So, we, I mean, we, we got to be focused on this. And, and so what's interesting here, though, is the inclusion of the word vivlos, I think that's really interesting because in, in the Hebrew, that doesn't happen until later uh, when it says 
Zetoladot. Right. It doesn't in the Hebrew. It doesn't yeah. say this is the book of the generations. Right. It, it just says, and yeah. these are the Toladot, the generations yeah. of the heavens and the earth. It does. It does later when it talks about the Toladot of man when it says Zesifer uh, Toladot, which is uh, these. This, this is the book of of uh, the birth, you could say, or the generations. Um, but in in Greek, they do it a lot earlier. Which I think is interesting because, again, I think that, uh, and, and this is just my theory, so I, I might be stepping out of bounds a little bit, um, but I, I think that this has to do with the Greek pointing you towards the actual Sefer Toledot, which is the Hebrew book of Genesis, because the whole point, again, of the Septuagint is to introduce the Greeks of the time to the Hebrew. I mean, you know, this is what translation should do for, should do for you. So I, I just think that, that that's interesting. But um, that vivlos geneseos, I mean, that appears all throughout the New Testament as well. I mean, that's how Matthew begins. Vivlos geneseos isu Christu, iu David, iu Abraham. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ. I, I think that it's all very interesting when you think about how even just the genealogical lines throughout Scripture, how that functions in the story, because going forward, we're about to see that a lot. We're about to see, um, you know, those long lists that everybody bemoans. Uh, you know, it's like so-and-so was the father of so-and-so and all of that. The, at, at the time that we're recording this, um, we're recording this on a Monday. Yesterday was the Sunday in the Orthodox Church where that was our appointed reading is, is Matthew 1, where it's, you know, just a bunch of names uh, to a lot of people. It's not just a bunch of names, but that's, that's how people experience it. But I would like us to remember what's really going on here in that it's telling you a story of the human seed and God's seed that overrides the human seed. And God's seed, of course, is ultimately the Torah that becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ according to the New Testament. So this Toledot thing, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, right, because if we, if we consider um, historiography and we step out the context of Scripture for a minute... Um, a lot of the way the historiographers reconstruct uh, ancient history and communicate the way that we should understand ancient people um, is through writing fragments. And humans didn't really start writing for the sake of historiography uh, until the Babylonian Empire. And one of those earliest forms was through kingly succession. So they would write down the genealogy of the king and how he came to be king, and ultimately that genealogy would lead back to a god. Um, so the way that it's used in scripture is subvertive. It's uh, it's always used, like Blaise said, it's used to communicate God's seed and also man's seed. And almost every time it's to communicate man's seed, it's negative. And when it's used to communicate God's seed, it's positive, right? So this is something that's going to continue to come up where we have two very similar themes that are paralleled, 
When it's related to God, it's positive. When it's uh, related to man, it's negative. You'll you'll see it very clear later on when you hear about Cain's genealogical line, and then you hear uh, Seth's genealogical line, especially since a lot of those characters in each genealogical line have the same name. So there's two Enochs and there's two Lamechs. So what does that mean? Well, we'll get there soon enough. (laughs) Right. So to recap, what we've heard is the conclusion of the first creation account, which is capped off by the Toledot, the generations of the heavens and the earth in the day that Yahweh Elohim made them. This is the Toledot of the heavens and the earth, not man. So this is the total story of the perfectly cyclical, symbiotically functioning, peaceful reality that God has created and ordained, everything serving its own function, all to carry out the will of God. And soon we will be introduced to the Toledot of man and the rest of the Bible, where we watch the descent of man and the repetitive warning to him to return to this state of mind that's introduced to us here in the opening chapter of Genesis. So we'll pick up in verse 5 and see what comes next in the story. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. God bless you all. Like the tree which is planted by the streams of the water.